I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer. My guest this week is a skin cancer surgeon. He's a skincare expert, a family doctor, academic, evolutionary biologist, a storyteller, and a social entrepreneur. His name is Dr. Sharad Paul, and I first heard him speak a couple of months ago in London all about the genetics of health, which is also the title of his most recent book, The Genetics of Health, Understand Your Genes for Better Health. So I got in touch, got him on the show. We've just spent the last hour talking about all kinds of things relating to genes and health. So why we need to make evolution personal. So what do we know about genetic health and why does it matter? What is the sluggish gene and what implication does that have on the way that we need to move? The connection between anxiety and genes and is anxiety an adaptive response? What's the impact of emotional stress on genes and disease and the umami threshold? If you're not sure what that is, I didn't know either, but stay tuned to find out. So this is part one of a two-part series. So if you're interested in finding out a bit more about Dr. Sharad Paul, then go to his website, which is drsharadpaul.com. You can get the book, The Genetics of Health on Amazon, but we are giving away a free copy. All you need to do, well, select someone at random, is jump onto iTunes, leave a review for this episode, mention the book, The Genetics of Health, and we'll enter you into that. And in a couple of weeks' time, after part two's gone out, we'll pick out someone at random and send you a free copy of the book. So that's it. Enjoy this episode. Dr. Shoad Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Oh, well, I'm delighted we could get you on. So, so I've seen you before, but you won't have seen me. I heard you speak a few months ago in London in what was a jam-packed value for money talk based on your new book, which is The Genetics of Health, Understand Your Genes for Better Health. So I quickly grabbed a copy I couldn't stay back to meet you, but read it, got in touch, and here we are. So I'm delighted. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, a pleasure. So let's start with a quote from you. We're going to talk all about genetics. And you say in the book that genes are our biological stars, predictors of our health hereditary, our health blueprint. What was it that made you focus on genetics and genes in particular? Because from a medical point of view, that's quite forward thinking, isn't it? Yes, I don't think it's forward thinking as much as medicine can often be backward thinking. Right. And I think it's because medicine will become very specialized and siloed. And my journey into genomics actually started with pathology. So in my main practice, I also specialize in skin cancer and skin care and skin. And what I found was everybody wants to look younger. And I was researching things for aging and talking about what they what genes are implicated in aging and what can we do about it. But what I found is the same genes which were implicated in aging were implicated in illness and injury. Yet, when somebody comes with an advanced melanoma, skin cancer, for example, the first thing we test is the genes to see what drugs they would respond to. But we don't do the same when it comes to wellness. So my question was, so what about, you know, coffee? Is it good for me or you or somebody else? What about how do you metabolize vitamin C? Why don't we even test these things which have massive health implications? Yeah. Going back to your quote, there are also some misconceptions. So, for example, you know, Angelina Jolie made gene testing famous, right? With the BRCA gene. 
Yes, that's right. Yeah. But as you know, 90% of the people who get breast cancer won't have the gene. Mm-hmm. Right. So the simplest thing to think about is genes are a blueprint, but they are not our destiny. And I think that's where that quote you are referring to came from. So my yeah. thinking was, yes, it is your blueprint, but you are in charge of your blueprint and you can actually modify your blueprint. So it doesn't have to become your destiny. I've heard it described that genes load the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. That's true. And you, to a large degree. <laughs> you yes. know. I mean, of course, you know, because your environment is both external and internal, right? Mm-hmm. So the external environment, you know, pollution, things like that, you don't have much control if you're living in London. Yeah. But the internal environment is what you put into your bodies and that you can control. So, so I, I think that's the way to look at it. Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the big trends right now in my particular sort of niche of health and fitness, which is non-medical, is personalization. It's I don't want one size fits all. I don't care what worked for you. I can maybe take that into account, but I'm really interested in, in what's going to work for me. And to do that, you need to do testing, not just genetic testing, but gut testing and many different types of testing. And what I thought was very empowering and interesting about the book and your talk is that you completely get that. And that's the message that you're trying to push. But to take an expression from the contents page of your book, Making Evolution Personal, you know, why does that really matter? And what do we currently know about how we can do that effectively and efficaciously? Yeah. Again, that chapter, I mean, when I started off, I was astounded that we can, for example, even today test people with a propensity for side effects from certain medications. So people are very commonly on anti-inflammatory drugs or anticoagulants, and we can actually predict which people of those will end up getting a bleed or end up getting yet. We don't test it. We just prescribe it everybody, put it in the disclaimer, and then they get the side effect then mm. it marks up their life. And what I was astounded is why are we not taking a personal approach to things? So really, my view of medicine is not democratic. It's very autocratic. And really, this is my way of thinking of democratizing medicine because, you know, with the internet and things like that, we have democratized many other areas where people are able to take charge and do their own thing. But when it comes to health, you get lost in this quagmire of somebody decides what's best for you. And even though you know inside you that something is not right, and we tend to ignore that. So so I think that's where this is coming from is because 100,000 years ago, when man left Africa, it was there were predators, life had a lot more dangerous things, which was life and death. So everybody was in the commune, everybody ate the same kind of stuff because they could get it. But after we migrated around the world, our genes got shaped by our diets and environments. So all of us have mixes of many different things, and we're all quite different. Mm. Interestingly, now we are more and more eating similarly, but not necessarily the foods we evolved to eat. So because, you know, you come to London, you can eat Thai food, you can eat whatever food you want, and it's the same here. Yeah. So I think that's why it's even more important that you know your basic gene profile for wellness, because then you can actually, you don't have to be fussy, but you can, within limits, you know, you can actually tailor your diet and lifestyle so you're actually fit and healthy. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the genes. I think, yeah, as, as you've said, it's, we understand why it matters. We need to personalize in order to, to match ourselves to the right diets 
to make sure that we're getting the right balance of, let's say, for example, caffeine, because we can, you know, there are genes that indicate your sensitivity for caffeine, to make sure we're getting the right balance of micronutrients, because there are genes indicate our sensitivity or requirements, I suppose, for things like vitamin D and B6 and B12 and so on. I mean, how much do you think this is in the realm of the rich or the very privileged at the moment? I think it is not for any other reason that mainstream healthcare hasn't embraced it yet. Mm. But I think it's really only a matter of time. Yeah. And it's interesting, I've often said this in medical talks, and a lot of major advances in medicine, because it's a very structured, a guild-like field like law, for example, come from outside the field, not from within the field. So I actually think in, you know, in 15 years or even possibly 10 years, it would be a no-brainer for the NHS, for example, to make sure yeah. that the public tested by your GPs, you know, they've started this 100,000 genome project, but that's really focusing on the other end of illnesses and cancers and things like that. But I really think when you're talking about genes, the vitamin C gene is a very, very good example and one I'd like to make say. One in five people carry a gene, which is a deletion variant of the GSTT1, which means they don't metabolize vitamin C properly. So for these people, let's just say from your 20s when you were at university, per year, your waist circumference goes up a teeny bit, your blood pressure goes up a teeny bit, your sugar goes up a teeny bit. But this is so gradual that if you tested every two to three years, you won't pick anything is wrong. Mm -hmm. But when the men or women are in their 40s to 50s, they've got pre-diabetes or they're overweight or they've got high blood pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is that these are the people who typically will say, oh, I no longer look like what I did at uni. And it would be many of us because one in five. But what's interesting with these people is that this could have just been prevented if they knew by eating an extra orange or an extra red pepper a day or something like that. And how expensive is that compared to once they get on to medication on which they have to remain for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Because once you're on high blood pressure medication or diabetes medication, let's face it, very few of them get off it. Yeah. And the point is, but the health system only gets interested in you, even the NHS at the moment. You can't refer anybody anywhere because they wouldn't be interested in seeing you. So in my view, that's a no-brainer because the cost will drive it. So actually, mm -hmm. in my view, it will happen the other way around, simply because there is no money to pay for healthcare illness model doesn't matter if it's a fully private system, US, or virtually fully public like UK or a hybrid system like what we have down under. Nobody will be able to pay for it. And I think that's where the changes will come. Bizarrely, it'll come because of money men and not health people. Yeah. So it's going to be cheaper to prevent than it is to cure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's talk about some of the genes that you discuss in the book. Let's start with what you call the sluggish gene. I think that was the essence of the talk that I came to, the lazy gene it was being nicknamed. <laughs> yes. Tell us, you know, we know many reasons why we need to move for physical health and for brain health as well, but why does it matter from a genetic standpoint? First of all, the most important reason to move is because the brain evolved for movement. Mm -hmm. So plenty of examples in evolution and the sea squirt is a very good example. It's like a creature lives at the bottom of the sea. It has two life forms. So one part of its life, it's mobile and it's going around in tentacles. And then it falls in love with a rock. It grabs hold of the rock, <laughs> never, never lets go. 
And once it never lets go, it's not going to move any longer. So it decides to digest its brain because it thinks I don't need a brain anymore because I'm not moving. But it needs all the other senses, right? So I use this he squirt as an example because the moral of the story is this. So if you're going to fall in love and sit in front of the TV, just eat a packet of chips and not move, you may as well eat your brain, right? So the truth of the thing is, so we know with illnesses, it is the same. So we know that not moving increases risk of dementia. Mm -hmm. We know that not moving increases risk of high blood pressure, whatever. Because movement is a fundamental part of us being two-legged. And also even more so because when we became two-legged compared to being four-legged like the apes, we found that we could go greater distances because we could run, we could look into the distance. So with all that came a bigger brain. And this is where my interest in skin led to this research is because, because the brain evolved from movement, the more we, we moved, our computer, which is our brain, became bigger. And as you know, computers need cooling systems. So that's why you have the big servers or big fans. Mm -hmm. And that's why we lost our fur. And that's why humans don't have fur, but we retained hair. And why did we retain hair? Because hair is an insect sensing mechanism. So we needed that, but we no longer need fur because it was too hot for our brains right. to operate. Interesting. Yeah. So really it's a fundamental part. Movement is just so important. Whatever condition you're talking about, even people when they've done functional MRI scans of people moving their legs when they're under an MRI scan, it shows lighting up of brain activity. So particularly right. movement is very important. For the example you gave, you know, we're on the sofa, slobbed out, beer and packet of crisps, whatever it is. We're not moving. And obviously it's a fairly permanent state, not an intermittent state. What happens to our brain? What's happening to it? So basically it just shuts down. It's basically like a computer. You know, the computer engineers I work with at the university, they often just look at the brain totally as a computer. They don't even see it as this hemisphere, that hemisphere. They're just looking at algorithms, right? So it's basically just like a computer where you stop using it. And so it starts seizing up and you turn it up. It takes a lot longer to boot up. It's exactly the kind of stuff. It's, got, it's dusty. It's disused. Many parts of the brain are no longer interacting with each other. And if they're not interacting with each other, the chemicals are not flowing. Mm. So it really just needs basically just disuse. And it's an interesting thing because if you go to, say, a dementia clinic, and the first thing the people there try to do is get people to move and also get people to lose weight. Because obviously they go hand in hand, the less you move, the bigger you become, and then the bigger you become, the smaller your brain becomes, right? Mm -hmm. That brings me something to you to actually, we'll come back to it actually when we talk about the fat genes, but the fat gut skinny brains concept, which I love. But yes. you mentioned hormones. I want to just go down that route because you talk about dopamine quite a bit in the book and serotonin as well. What are the relevance of those key hormones? Cortisol, I guess you'd have to add in as well. That's right. So cortisol, of course, is a steroid and it's basically a stress hormone, right? So basically, when you are in fight or flight situation, you have adrenaline, which is first secreted because that's compressing your vessels so you don't bleed to death, giving you alertness, things like that. And then that's very short acting. And then you have the noradrenaline in the danger response, which is the next phase. And then you have the cortisol, which sort of suppresses your immune system so that if you're now wounded, you sort of cope with it a bit pain a bit better and it suppresses everything so your immune system is not over attacking things. So in short bursts, these things are useful. But if you're under chronic stress, 
then of course you're constantly immune separate. So that's the importance of cortisol. Mm. Now, dopamine is different because dopamine is really our pleasure particle pretty much, right? So in fact, there is a evidence that if you look back in history and it's the time when we started consuming more meat because obviously you're eating meat and you're eating the dopamine and these other animals and with our diets becoming more dopaminergic and of course nowadays a lot of our diets are dopaminergic because the food manufacturers in processed mm. foods can add a lot of those stuff so what you find is that actually makes you more not only pleasure seeking but you also become more grandiose so you're more likely to believe in something outlandish. So you can actually see a lot of stuff, how what we eat shapes how we become. And like in the book, you might remember there's a place I'm talking about where they put mice on a, what they call American cafeteria diet, which was just, I think, Coke and fast food. And mm. these mice were overweight, depressed, but they're also paranoid. and things. So you can see like in the world, you can see the behaviors of people. And then you think, you know, you effectively become what you eat. So that's why societies are very dopaminergic. So short attention span, but high needs. And it's very similar to even social media. Exactly. In fact, I think there were research, I think I read somewhere that in fact, that was partly uh, could have been the famous Zuckerberg's thesis when he studied psychology. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, they were really looking on how to Addict, because he studied psychology and they knew the addictive power of social media because it's dopaminergic, it's constant reinforcement. Yeah. You know, it's like an echo chamber. You're not actually going to places there to learn, which you can, but most people just want, are searching things which they want reinforced. So for example, yeah. let's just say Brexit as an example. Let's say if you were a Brexiter, when you go on and you're only looking for Brexiters, what they're saying, because then it reinforces and you go, yes, so you actually start thinking, yeah. everyone's thinking like me. Or it's maybe the other way around. But, you know, so we're all constantly dopaminergic. Our diets are dopaminergic. Yeah. Serotonin is the third, and that's really more a mood. It's more related to, you know, your happiness as opposed to pleasure seeking. And it's slightly different. It's more, the more sun you have, the more positive it's perhaps, I would say, it's more like you being more positive. And this is serotonin. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's more various dopamine is pleasure as well as, you know, very short, quick fix kind of a thing. Yeah. Where serotonin is more like, you know, even you're in sunshine, you produce more serotonin. That's why winter blues, you're more likely to feel down when you're in winter. Mm. Unless your winter is like me, which you can see behind me. It's, it's bright not a bad sunny. looking winter, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the relationship between actually before that did I hear you correctly did you say that when we consume animals that have dopamine in their systems it impacts yes. our dopamine levels over time like what I mean is if you were just eating cereal yeah there's no dopamine in cereal but there's a lot of dopamine in meats yeah eating meat is like eating ourselves right if you think about it so we're dopaminergic so if we were cannibals and you're eating other people you're eating their dopamine which they have consumed, <laughs> right? So till humans had the tools to eat animals, the diets were very low dopamine. So that's part of the reason theories believe that there were not so many religions and things like that before that, because you're more likely to believe in the Messiah or a super politician or whatever once you're very dopaminergic. <laughs> so conversely then, 
if you're consuming something that we're more grandiose, we suddenly think we're special people. So we yeah. now suddenly, because we're dopaminergic and we're constantly eating dopamine and we're all dopamine addicts, yeah. we suddenly think we are special in this universe. The truth is the earth doesn't give us stuff. It's been there before us. It will be there after us. Whether the human race survives is a different issue mm. in the path we're going. But the fact is, that's one, the only reason we think we're super special is because we're all dopaminergic people. That's interesting. So to flip that then, if you're consuming animals that are very cortisol riddled, yes. can that contribute to our own stress levels? In other words, what is the impact of what we're eating on our genes and how we feel? And to take that a step further back, the impact of what we're eating has eaten. Yes, I think one of the issues is absolutely. So if we eat a lot of animals, let's just say who've been fed steroids, then because of the steroids, we tend to then gain weight and we will then tend to also have higher stress levels and things like that simply because we are consuming. So, and that's part of the reason why, you know, our meats now are quite different to what our ancestors ate because the meats were very lean and the meats also, they didn't differentiate. They ate, you know, brains, testicles, liver, everything. Organ meats. That's right. Yeah. So, but what's interesting with that is that some of those parts of the body had omega three. So, our ratios also of omega six to omega three, which we mentioned in the book, mm. is a big part of health in society. So, if you look at the fossils of ancient man and you study it, their omega six to omega three was almost one to one. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, our omega six to omega three is in some cases ten to one. 15 to 1, 6 to 1. And we know that everything from breast cancer goes up when your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio is too high. Mm. Rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes. So these are all things we constantly hear more of than we used to hear in the past. And that's because even the lot of oils we think are good, they may be so, but it's the ratio of these fats, which is how we evolved which is now out of kilter because our diets are so processed and we don't have enough Mm. fish and we have too much meats and processed meats. So omega-3 and 6, to to clarify, they are fatty acids that are very good for brain health and cognitive health as well as general health. Three we need to get from an external source such as fish. Omega-6 we can produce endogenously, can't we? So within the body. I think the body's pretty poor in general at producing. So these are almost like, I think, in a crudest way, not as scientific, but a crude way of describing this. These are like vitamins of the fats, right? Because mm-hmm. vitamins, by definition, you don't produce much. You can vitamin D a little bit, but you really have to take it in. But the difference with omega-6 and the omega-3 is in fish oils, but there's some vegetable sources like flaxseed and also walnuts have some omega-3 as well. Now, the thing with this omega-3 and omega-6 is in a lot of the other oils, where, you know, sunflower oil, various things. The reason they became popular is because people were looking at cholesterol in its purity and they were thinking, because we don't want to have too much cholesterol, we should be therefore eating these other oils. But then you were consuming too many of these other oils at the expense of eating fish and things like that. So mm. that's how our ratio has been out of kilter. Right. And yes, absolutely. So for brain function, various things, there's subtle differences between the different omega-3s is like the omega-3s, which are sourced from 
walnuts and flaxseed and things, they're actually also good for you. But from a fish source has a higher rate of being converted to the DHAs and things which are much better for brain function. Mm -hmm. Those are still good for like cardiovascular function. So it is really, as a bottom line, a simple thing would be more plant foods, less red meat, more fish would be overall summary. But if you were not a fish eater, then you would have to think about, you know, walnuts and flax seeds and that kind of stuff is very, very important for you. And of course, if you didn't want to do this on guesswork, you'd need to have a blood test to tell you where you're at right now. Absolutely. And then use a DNA test to tell you what your requirements are, your very unique genetic requirements are for something like that. That's right. So that's what I specialize in fundamentally, because even having had these general rules, you may be a person who has a gene which then predisposes you to not absorbing something even when you ate it properly. So you may be the person which needs to have much more of it in your diet than other people. So vitamin A is another example. So there's a gene where some people simply will not absorb it enough. So you have to eat more vitamin A sources with either liver or cod liver or pumpkins, things like that. So normally, if you did my gene test, then I would send you a report which will say this is your profile and then I'll also tailor your diet to say therefore you should eat more of this less of this so what it means is it doesn't mean you can't eat anything else what it means is that within reason when you're at home base like I travel a lot so when you're traveling you don't want to be the fussy guy saying I'm not eating this I'm not eating this but when you're back at home base if you had a little bit of discipline then you find you know you are like I said the same genes are implicated in aging injury, illness, everything. So what it means is you don't fall ill, you have more time to do the things you want to do and Mm. you look younger and, you know, the whole lot of things. And I guess it's working with your genes and not against them. Yeah, you're... you're, That's absolutely, that's right. Okay, just to finish off on sluggish genes, because I think I took you way off topic there. Are there genes that can indicate, you know, is there a lazy gene? Yeah, so there are three different, I think maybe two different types of laziness, right? So there is a sluggish gene, which is a lazy gene, which means you are unmotivated to exercise fundamentally, right? Right. So it's okay because if you know that you have the gene, like when I test, these are the people, if you are a businessman and you're a gym owner, these are the guys you sell them a two-year membership because you know they're not going to come more than two weeks and then you already made your money. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, so these are the people I would say you need a personal trainer or somebody to motivate you, take a friend along, because you're not going to do it on your own, right? Mm. But what's interesting here is this. If you put the people with these genes on specifically more tailored endurance exercise, you start expressing other genes which changes you. Right. So this is why you often see somebody's taken up running or cycling, and you never thought, you, running or cycling, if you think of the person as a runner or a cyclist, you would have laughed. But suddenly they're addicted and they're like running at this, I'm going to Boston, I'm going here. Yep. That's because the lazy gene is response to endurance exercise. So when the studies were done on mice, where they put mice with this sluggish gene on a treadmill and got them running, what it found is after a while, they're like, they couldn't have enough of treadmills. Like, Give me another mile. You know, they're like running and you know so so there is hope for all of us that's why i say so genes are a blueprint so yes your blueprint may say you've got the sluggish gene and so what we then say to you is okay then maybe what the type of exercise you need to make sure you at least do endurance exercise twice a week you know run so many cares or do this 
depending on what you prefer doing, swimming, cycling. Leg movement is the most important. And it needs to be endurance, does it? That's right, for these right. people. Okay. But yeah, but then there is a different, not for all, for some other people, there are genes for power and things like that. Yeah, but I'm this is the sluggish gene. It responds to endurance exercise, yeah. That's right. So then you have, you know, a different kind of lazy gene, which is a procrastination gene. But the genes for procrastination are actually a little more finely tuned because if you think about it, it's like when we were in caves, the people who procrastinated actually survived because they were like, oh, my tools are not sharp enough. I'm still going to keep shoveling. You go and fight the tiger. And guess those guys didn't come back. So, by <laughs> And the, similarly, that's why a lot of us carry the anxiety gene because the anxious and the procrastinators, they were still in the caves. The real tough guys like, I'll go fight the saber tooth. And guess what? Who didn't come back? So by sheer not coming back, the people who are in the caves. So most of us carry an anxiety gene, which we use inappropriately. When you're going around London, you're thinking, oh, my God, there's going to be a terrorist attack. It's unsafe. Fact of the matter is London is much safer now than it was in Shakespeare's time. Mm. I think I mentioned it in the book. Yeah, you do. I can't remember. But it was something like crazy, like maybe one in 500 were being murdered. You know, if you had that kind of a murder rate, including all this terrorism, everything else, it's like a thousand times safe. That'd be horrific. Yeah. But we don't feel that. Why? Because we carry this anxiety gene. And why do we carry this gene? Because we survived. We were still in the caves. We were the scary cats. So the real brave hearts all went and tried to fight and didn't come back because life was very dangerous. And so the procrastinators were a subset of those who also survived. But the procrastinators are actually high achievers because what happens is if you're procrastinating, we've found from the studies is you know that your plan is not right. So what I'm trying to get at is let's just say it's you and you are starting a new business. Uh, let's just say you're starting a business as training people. If you go back over your history and you looked at the time when it took you the longest to get things off the ground and you thought of it, what if I had got it off the ground at that point in time? You yourself know that wouldn't have been as good a business. You mm. weren't ready, yeah. let's face it. Yeah. And actually, that's a fact in it. When these people have been analyzed, they actually found in university studies where they assessed procrastinating gene people versus the people who were non-procrastinators, the procrastinators actually achieved higher grades. So converse to what you think. The guys who just charged in and said, I'm going to finish this, they actually didn't do as well in longer courses. Mm. Things because the procrastinators were guys who were constantly fine tuning the thing and eventually they got there. But actually, truth be told, they didn't release their plan too quickly. Yeah. And I guess evolutionary, we need a combination, don't we? We need someone to go out and fight the saber toothed tiger and we need someone else to stay back and procreate. But of course, and in the old days, they were life was very dangerous. So most of these brave guys died. Yeah. So most of the truthful are scary cats. So there may be a few tigers among us, but mostly everybody is a bit scary cat or a procrastinator. Yes, I know a few. <laughs> Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com and click on take the test. And it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39 page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com and take our test.
Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone who you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.